So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show that is going to be rebranded as the Cometown Rejects. I'm your host, Yassine Maschut, and today's topic is the Student Loan Jubilee. We'll be discussing the merits and demerits of forgiving student loans. And today's panel is a limited one. We have Tracing Woodgrains. Hello. How's it going? And we have a new contender that has entered the ring. This is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello. How are you? Good. Let's start with you, Pete. Uh, what is your interest in this topic and what is your position? Well, my interest is uh, pretty simple in that uh, I have student loans and I like it if I didn't anymore. So just, I guess, a little background. I went to an in-state public university for four years and came out with about uh, $40,000 in debt. And it took me about eight years to get a job where I was no longer qualifying for income-based repayment, which meant for about eight years, I was just paying off interest. And it's only been in the last three years that I've been able to start chipping away at the principal. And I'm one of the luckiest people I know with regards to my ability to pay off my student loans. So all of that being sort of an introduction to saying, I think the federal government absolutely should cancel all existing federal student loan debt. To be clear, I don't think that that's a solution to the broader, more systemic issues with U.S. higher ed uh, and, and how we finance it in particular. But with uh, 40 million debtors plus, 44 million, I think, and over $1.6 trillion of total student loan debt, there's really something clearly wrong. And part of fixing it needs to be cleaning up the mess. That really needs to be the other side of the reform coin is cleaning up the mess that's been made already. So that's more or less where I stand. Okay. Makes sense. Could you describe like a little bit of your political persuasion? Yeah, I'm the uh, token lefty. I identify as a uh, leftist, progressive, democratic socialist, you know, depending on who I'm talking to and how they'll understand any of those terms. And Tracing Woodgrains, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. So my interest in this topic and my position on it is, I guess it's a topic that's been following me for a while in that I have made really significant life decisions based around the question of college payments and what to do about college. And um, it's something that I have strong feelings about. So growing up, I always very much wanted to go to the best school I possibly could, say a really fancy, posh, East Coast, Ivy League, whatever, some school where I would really be challenged, really be pushed, be surrounded by a bunch of really remarkable people. And I guess I had this image of college in my head of this meaningful, spectacular growth experience that uh, is uh, worth sacrificing a lot for. And I looked at the price tag on that, and me coming from a middle class, comfortable but not uh, wealthy by any means family, with parents who were frugal and careful with their money and had uh, worked their way out of poverty, uh, we looked at the price tags of all of that and the uh, three siblings I had and the zero aid that they would really give us. And we said, okay, so all of those would be really cool. Not a chance in the world those are happening unless you want to go into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So instead, I went to the local university, uh, Brigham Young University, Mormon school, and started my college education out there. That went south for me when I started becoming more distant from Mormonism and started becoming just less comfortable with that whole culture and just frustrated with my college experience there in general. So I looked into transferring to Boston College. I got accepted there. I applied for aid. 
I looked at the price tag, and again I said, there's not a chance on earth that I can or should afford this. I ended up uh, dropping out of college uh, and working in a job that I'm comfortable with for now, but doesn't require a degree. Ended up looking for a cheap online university to continue my education, have zero dollars in student loan debt, and have never had any student loan debt, and have made very significant life sacrifices to keep it that way. So when I hear ideas like forgiving student loan debt being tossed about, what I hear as someone at the start of my career who has actually not even yet finished my college degree, but who has made sacrifices to get to where I am, what I see is essentially a giant middle finger directed towards me and towards everyone who has made decisions like me, saying, all those sacrifices you made and all those uh, decisions towards delayed gratification you made, screw that, screw you. We are going to make sure that you do not get anything from that, and in fact, your taxes will go to pay off everyone else's loans as you sit and watch. So there's there's a feeling of personal animus here for me that I won't uh, hide in terms of this policy. It's something that would very much turn me against the Democratic Party if they were to implement it as the token perpetually dissatisfied centrist, and something that I feel like I have enough experience with the college system to say, yes, there are some huge flaws with it, some enormous errors that need to be corrected, and price is one of them. The whole system of payment for them is so messed up right now, but there are a lot of solutions that I see that don't involve student blanket student loan forgiveness, and I think blanket student loan forgiveness ends up being in that in the ant grasshopper fable, it ends up being return to the grasshoppers, the savings of the ants, and is just a really toxic policy idea in general. So that's my overall position. Okay. Uh, in terms of my own trajectory, so I, I've I've had the experience in both fields in a way. The college that I went to, George Mason University, was a state school. I lived in state at the time that I went there. So basically, I ended up with no debt whatsoever because the tuition was just, you know, like a token amount. And this experience kind of followed the kind of like my family's ethos of only paying for things that you could directly afford. I never took out student loans for my college experience, but at the same time, you know, the tuition was like $3,000 a semester. This was very different when I went to law school where driven by the idea that, well, fuck, I'm going to be a lawyer, which means I'm going to be rich once I graduate. I'll just like take out whatever loans. It was it was fueled entirely, almost entirely, by taking out gigantic student loans. I have a ridiculous outstanding debt. And I think years ago, I realized that there was just no way I was going to ever pay this back. And that was largely because I could not get a job after law school, at least nothing consistent. Uh, and so it just stayed there and it kept accumulating. And it wasn't until recently or like a, maybe a couple of years ago that I started to realize that there wasn't really a point to paying it back, or at least no significant or obvious negative consequences to not paying it back. So I'm treating it as de facto, as already forgiven, in the sense that it does not materially affect my decision structure. It exists, it's hanging over my head, but it doesn't change how I'm proceeding with my life. We'll discuss that and I'll explain like more the basis 
for why I believe that. Uh, perhaps a good way to start is establishing some common grounds, at least in terms of what we believe the facts are. And I think a, a good starting point is the current affairs article by Sparky Abram that is titled Student Debt Forgiveness, Let's Do Some Math. Because I think it raises some excellent points regarding the figure that is often bandied about in the amount of $1.6 trillion. That's potentially the amount that the government would have to pay uh, in order to forgive all currently outstanding student loan debt. But as, as Abram points out, the answer is a lot more complicated. Uh, Pete, do you want to give like a summary of it? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the basic argument is that the cost to forgive a debt isn't necessarily the current amount of the debt. It's what you can reasonably expect to get a return on. Yeah, so the, the example that they give is um, if a bank forecloses on a house with, uh, for instance, a $200,000 outstanding mortgage, the fair market value of the house is less than that, then the cost to forgive the debt would be that market value more so than the actual mortgage price. Right. The cost of forgiveness is basically the expected recovery from the current outstanding loan. Right. Yes. That's sorry. That's what I was trying to say. But yeah, if the bank can only expect to to ever get back ten thousand dollars on that on that mortgage, regardless of what's actually owed on paper, then that's the cost of the forgiveness, not whatever's theoretically owed on paper. So, because so many people default on their student loans or just sort of pay them off in perpetuity on income based repayment, the actual cost to the federal government of forgiving the debt would be most likely significantly less than the one point six trillion that it currently stands on paper, but there's really no, you know, formula that you could use to figure out what that actually is. It's kind of like unknowable, but it's likely less than 1.6 trillion. Right. So if a student like wholesale student loan forgiveness does happen, this is not an example of the federal government writing a check for $1.6 trillion. It's a lot more complicated than that. And in fact, I think like the issue here is that the cost has already happened. It happened when the loans were dispersed initially. Uh, that's when the money already left the government coffers. And right now they exist in like this, you know, kind of like almost ethereal, uh, non-corporeal form where they exist, but only as a number. And we don't really know what the actual expected payback is. Uh, so the cost has already happened. Uh, that's like the main takeaway that I got from the current affairs article. Trace, go ahead. So. I'd say only in, and obviously you're only talking about the financial, direct financial sense, but I would say it's only in the direct financial sense that that applies. And I think when you're talking cost, it is really important to look at cost as a whole, where yes, it's accurate to say that the government has already paid that money out and the true cost of forgiveness would be however much they can get back from it. What that analysis leaves out is the question of costs like uh, social trust costs, uh, costs of the implied contract of things like that. The question of, is this a society where we can rely on that sort of contract? Is this a society where we can rely on things like that to hold or where we're going to treat money as more of this abstract game, do whatever we want with it, play around with things like that. There's a lot of fragility and a lot of uncertainty that something like that introduces into a system. Right. You're, you're, you're basically describing kind of like a, 
a game theory uh, situation yes. where the the decisions by certain actors are going to affect the decisions of the other actors. Uh, in this case, it would be what gets forgiven is going to change how lenders are going to approach this in the future. That's one of the, or, and also it also addresses how lenders have approached this in the past, including people like you who chose not to take out money because of what they thought the rules were at that time. Yes. It affects both lenders, borrowers, and affects all of them. Right. We'll, we'll get into kind of like the game theory aspect of it. I just want to make sure that we establish, I guess, like non-controversial things. Right. So I think everyone is in agreement that it's not actually $1.6 trillion that has to like flow out of the government treasury. It's an amount far less than that. I wouldn't necessarily say far less. Okay. I'm not so going to concede far less. But. Right. But you, you can see that it's not $1.6 trillion. Yes. And what... We have, and the current affairs article gets into this, what we have is, I believe, something like half of all outstanding loans are in some f- sort of forbearance, either because the person went to a graduate school or they have like uh, an income-based repayment or they've suspended it in some way. Uh, so it's already, like half of it is already kind of frozen. It's not doing anything. But I mean, that's fairly predictable and not something that should be taken to indicate that that half is not going to get paid back because grad school um, income-based repayment, these things are fairly predictable trajectories that late career changes. I, I understand that it should not be an in indication of whether or not it's going to be paid back. I'm, I'm only trying to describe what the existing reality is. That's it. And it's not, it's not like editorializing uh, on like whether it, it should be like this or it shouldn't. But the reality is... It's $1.6 trillion. Let's say half of it is doing nothing already, like without any further policy changes or discussions or what's going to happen in the future. Right now, half of it is just doing nothing. Uh, and a significant percentage of the other half that is supposedly active, a big chunk of that is uh, on an income repayment plan. I don't know what the exact figures are. And maybe Pete, you can jump in if you have them in mind. I don't know what the exact figures are, but it's in terms of like the universe of student loans, the amount that is the amount of loans are being paid back in full with any form of realistic payment schedule that would actually result in a zero balance at the end is a fraction of a fraction of the entire outlay right now. Is there any disagreement with that? I want to explain not exactly disagreement, but why I'm pushing back anyway on. on this. Pete, is that an accurate description? Uh, yeah, that sounds exactly right. Um, looking at the current affairs article, it's, it says pretty clearly that 56% of uh, federal student loan balance was in repayment last year. Uh, so that means there's 44% that is not being paid back at all, um, either because it's in default or, like you said, uh, someone's in school or uh, unemployed. So for any number of reasons, close to half of the federal student loan debt is currently just like you said, sitting there doing nothing. And there's a, f- a fraction of that is never going to do anything, either because someone's in, you know, someone's disabled or they're just never going to get another job that pays enough for them to make a significant dent in the um, the total balance or any number of reasons. So, like you said, a fraction of a fraction is never realistically going to be paid off. And that's, like, indisputable in my mind. Right. And to add more, the out of the 56% of loans in repayment, only about 45% of those loans 
are repaid in standard full repayment plans. Uh, so that means 55% of the 56% are in some form of income-based repayment. So the amount, I guess you can say like basically a quarter of all outstanding loans are being paid back in full. And the income-based repayment ranges dramatically, obviously based on how much you make. I was on an income, I still am on an income-based repayment. Uh, and for a long time it was zero because I had no job, but it changes and I think it, depending on which plan you're on it, the maximum it gets to is just like 10% of your income, which can be like a relatively trivial amount depending on your uh, financial situation. Uh, but I'm just describing what the reality is. We have 1.6 trillion in outstanding loans. Uh, and basically only a quarter of that is being repaid in full. That is resulting in about $85 billion in revenue to the, to the federal government. Is there any disagreement with what I just described, Trace? And not not the ramifications of it, but what I just described. Yes, but it's a tricky sort of disagreement that I need a moment to properly unpack. Okay. Which is in the sense of the way and the timing in which that is presented. In you starting this off and saying, okay, so let's start off with non-controversial things we can all agree on. That is, a current affairs article that explains why repaying student loans wouldn't be as big a deal as all that because the actual amount is much less than the number that you hear bandied about. That's the short summary of what I hear you unpacking there. And that's why, even though I think those numbers uh, are more or less accurate, um, I think it's an interesting direction to start with that I don't really agree with being a non-controversial data-driven way to start. Okay, what what objection do you have? So, in the sense of when I'm hearing, oh, let's start with things we all agree with, what I am expecting to hear is something like, you know, let's talk about, yes, the cost of college is completely out of control, there are things that need to be done with it, yes, what we have going on in terms of student loans, a lot of this is unsustainable, things like that. What I got was... Uh, current affairs article. Um, <laughs> Trace, you're I not making. We're you're on not a making art. Yeah, but you're not making any arguments. You're just. My argument is, people highlight different facts depending on their priorities. Right, and, and you, you now have the platform to highlight the facts that you wish. To no, no. Are what, relevant. But right, what I'm saying though, those facts are relevant. Those facts are not neutral. So if we're starting with neutral facts, we can all agree with. Like no, no, no. Like none of these facts are going to be neutral. I mean, then let's not present it that way. Let's not start presenting it as Look, we're trace <laughs> the 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 implications of a fact is where you would come in. That's where you would be able to make your argument. What we're starting with is: Do we have any disagreement about the numbers? What they mean is something different. But what are the numbers? That that's something that we should agree upon. Why don't we do this? We can we can start with forty four million debtors owing a total of one point six trillion. I believe the average is something like thirty two thousand dollars. And were that debt to be forgiven, the cost to the federal government would likely be less than that total one point six trillion. Yes. Okay. Yes, I agree with those numbers completely. I'm just using the current affairs because I thought it was a, a good article and and how it summarizes it. It linked. Uh, to its sources, it's it's well cited. What you have, you know, plenty of time, Trace, to introduce uh, other relevant facts. 
I just don't like the framing of starting with something we can all agree with as that. Basically, well, okay. I don't think the that's reason the reason I where to start. Well, the reason I decided to well, the reason I wanted it to to be that way is because I don't want to go into like this infinite tailspin of well, this study says this, but this study says that. I just want to kind of clear the the debris and have some sort of clean slate, uh, at least as much as we can we can we can make that practical. Fair. All right. So, what facts that you think are relevant that should be introduced? Um, I mean, I think. One of the most important ones is the question of which debt, how much debt is owned by people in currently what level of income or uh, what level of future income. So, but things I'm looking at are the premium attached to getting a college degree, um, the premium attached to getting a graduate degree, the amount of debt outstanding specifically from people with graduate degrees, and the uh, amount of debt outstanding by people uh, from relatively high, relatively wealthy backgrounds and people who will go on to be relatively wealthy. There were 3.9 million undergrads between 2014 and 2016 who dropped out with student loan debt and no degree. So I think that's a relevant bit of information. All right, so pulling out uh, what I was specifically referencing in terms of the share of outstanding debt by uh, income. So the highest quintile of income uh, has 26% of outstanding debt. The fourth quintile has 32% of outstanding debt. The middle quintile has 22%. And the lowest two quintiles combined have only uh, 19% of outstanding debt. So when you're talking stu- blanket student loan forgiveness, what you're saying is about 80% of that is going to go to people who are the middle quintile or above. And more than their fair share, significantly more is going to go to the fourth and highest quintile. Uh, and I think that's really important to establish. Right. And uh, is it fair to say that the higher your quintile, the more likely you already you are to be paying? Yes, that's also accurate. Uh, in terms of monthly debt payments, uh, the fourth and the highest quintile combined make some, let's see, some 73% of monthly debt payments uh, and only 10% in the lowest two. So that's reflected by perhaps the amount they took out as well as their capacity to pay back, right? Right. Because they're the ones who are getting those. And I mean, your own position is a good case study for this. They're the ones who are going to law school, the ones who are going to medical school, the ones who are racking up those actually hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans with the promise of careers that will make them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah, that's, that's exactly my situation. Uh, so what do you think the implications are of this uh, distribution? I think the implications of the distribution are that college has been and is an investment in career, although there are ways in which it's breaking down a lot. People are rationally looking at the position and saying, this is going to make me a lot more money over the course of my career, therefore it is worth putting extra money into it, and they are going to be getting a long-term delayed reward that will last them their whole lives and will make them uh, a lot of money relative to their alternatives and paying in to that with student loans that in general, as a general rule, total out to significantly less than the premium that they make from it. That in general, it is true that college, going to college remains a path to more comfortable life and greater wealth in the future and that student loans are 
in general, less than the reward of getting that college degree and uh, getting that progression. So you're saying that it's a rational decision to rack up that in pursuit of a higher paying career? In a lot of cases, yes. And it there are a ton of cases where it breaks down, don't get me wrong. But in general, the people who are doing that are the people who are going to be making, I mean, with doctors, lawyers, and MBAs, they're going to be making $750,000 more than bachelor's degree holders over the course of their career. And so, yeah, they're going to look at a few hundred thousand dollars of student loans and say, this is going to make me a lot more money down the line. This is worth it. And I think that's a generally correct position for them to notice. Pete, do you have any response to that? Basically, the I, I agree with those numbers uh, broadly. I think that while it's true that uh, higher earners own most of the debt in terms of raw dollars, I think that the the burden of the debt is much more significant on lower earners, even if they have less, you know, gross dollars owed. I'm less concerned with the perceived unfairness of doctors and lawyers getting their loans repaid uh, than I am with the benefit it would have to people with lower incomes and still have, who still have debt. Well, it's true that doctors and lawyers and people like that hold most of the debt in terms of raw dollars. I'm convinced that the burden of debt is much, much greater for people like call center workers, uh, nurses, uh, people in kind of like pink collar positions, which is a growing part of the economy. Maybe not a growing part of the economy, but the, those kinds of jobs are becoming more common, uh, especially for people with debt. Is it fair to frame a jubilee as a form of tax cut, given that the government is the primary debt holder? And, and in terms of what is actually being lost, it's government revenue? Yeah. So I, I, I prefer to frame it like a, a debt jubilee would be, a student debt jubilee would be not free money, uh, but a free education kind of retroactively. If, if Joe Biden came into office and said, look, we're not going to forgive a penny of anyone's student loan debt, but starting today, anybody who wants to go to a four-year state university can do so with no cost to them whatsoever. We wouldn't be having the same conversation. Uh, we wouldn't be saying, well, that's not fair because people who don't go to school won't make as much money. So why should their taxes go to pay people who do choose to go to school. It's just not, that's not how people would be talking about it. It's exactly how people talk about it. Go ahead, Trace. No, like, I mean, that's exactly the argument people make against free college also. And I think it's not an argument I feel as strongly about. I think that there's a really good case for free community college specifically, but people make exactly that argument against free college all the time, which is, and I think it's an important argument in all honesty, that not everyone is suited uh, for college. Not everyone should go to college. We shouldn't necessarily make college the norm. And by making college free, we are disadvantaging relatively people who are not going to college because we are choosing to financially subsidize people who are, in general, going to be going into higher paying and more productive careers. And that could be a sound economic decision. It could be a reasonable social decision. But there is that trade-off and there is that cost. And I think it's absolutely fair and important to point out that that cost does fall on those who do not get college degrees. That when you choose to make something free at point of service, the cost for that falls primarily on the people who do not benefit from it. And in this case, that would be making college, the traditional pathway to the upper middle class, fall on the shoulders of non-college graduates traditionally not the upper middle class. That is 
as true with free university as it is with student debt forgiveness. And people make both those arguments. But but wouldn't wouldn't college educated people then pay more taxes over the course of their career relative to people who didn't go to college and made less money? Kind of like offsetting that balance. I don't see how it's I just don't see how people who don't go to college would be disadvantaged in any kind of like material sense. Like maybe in an abstract on paper way, like maybe, but in a, in a material lived sense, no one's being disadvantaged by free university or debt forgiveness. No, they absolutely are. They absolutely 100% are. When you are saying, when the government has limited amount of capability, and unless we're a positing world where there are no limitations on resources, there are no limitations on time, there are no limitations on ability, then there are only so many things it can do. There are only so many priorities. There are only so many costs. There are only so many actions it can take on. And when it chooses to take on an action and a cost that benefits one class of people, in this case, college graduates, it is disadvantaging relatively, what through opportunity cost, through avoiding programs that they could be directing towards those people, uh, through taxes, through any number of ways, it is relatively disadvantaging everyone who does not receive that benefit. That is the trade-off inherent in government. I, I mean, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll concede that. But I just don't, I don't see that, uh, that negative outweighing the positive of, of... Education is, I think, a public good, and I think everyone should be able to have access to it. Well, I, I'm identifying, I'm seeing kind of like an odd public finance question here. It's kind of weird to say that, like, free... Let's, let's, assuming, like, the prospect of free education... And within American society, that often translates into the most viable pathway to a higher income. So, I mean, it basically ends up being sort of a subsidy to the rich, but only insofar as going to college is more likely to make you rich, uh, regardless of what your uh, background is. Right. And I mean, like the, the truly, I mean, just that the truth, the truly wealthy aren't the ones taking out the debt. I mean, those are people that can pay their way through college. Nobody's leaving Yale or Harvard with a ton of student loan debt. You know, either when you go there, you're already wealthy and you can pay your way through, or they have such substantial uh, financial aid available, independent of, of loans. That it's you know those people aren't the ones who are going to benefit mainly from student loan forgiveness. It's not going to be the MBAs coming out of Yale. Well, yeah, but um, I mean, necessarily we have to really simplify things. But to the extent that not having a college degree is a proxy for being poor, then it stands to reason that the, you know, public finance burden is not placed on, on those people. Right. Right. On the non college educated, there's going to be a few that are going to be uh, placed with the burden. And I'm thinking traditionally high paying blue collar jobs, like, you know, plumber, contractor, roofer. Uh, these are people that could make, uh, you know, that do plausibly make, uh, income in the six figures, but do not necessarily have a college education, they would be burdened, quote unquote, with the prospect of, of this cost. But I think most of it is going to be by other college graduates who happen to be in the higher end of the income uh, spectrum. Trace, do you disagree? Uh, no, I don't disagree with that. So if uh, if we were kind of like starting from scratch, I can see the argument of just from public finance to, I guess, more narrowly t uh, construct the the scheme. And I'm not saying that like in a nefarious way, but it, it, to me, there's kind of like a, a rational element to saying, well, if you want to go to college, you just have to 
take out loans with the expectation that you go to college in order to improve your income, if that's like a primary motivator. So leaving the burden on those who stand to directly benefit seems somewhat rational. And I'm not talking about like all the uh, policies that surround it, but it seems somewhat rational to tailor the public outlay on, on people that not only benefit, but also can withstand the burden. Right. And that is my own position, that the cost of a college education should fall primarily on the primary beneficiary of it. That is the individual. The main issue of it is that it comes before they'll benefit from it and before they're in a position to pay for it simply by the nature of what it is, where you're trying to invest for a later career. And therefore, it should be very, very easy and very low cost to defer the payments on it until they are starting to receive the rewards from it. Things like income-based repayment, firming that up. What you just described is is common. Like, you know, it makes sense that, uh, let's say you're like a, a new enterprise that needs loans. It makes sense that you're not going to be able to benefit whoever your lender until later. The goal is, give me money now. I'll do some, I'm, I'll start a business and eventually I'll be able to to be in a position to pay you back. Yes. So it's not, it's not unusual. Uh, I think what is unusual in uh, in the student loan realm is kind of this disconnect where um, here's something that I would describe as slightly more rational and I'll explain what I mean by that. I think it would make more sense for the schools to be the lenders because then you uh, couple this the moral hazard and the incentives in a more rational basis. What I mean by that is it makes sense for the schools to shoulder the risk of the expected return of your education. So if they want to claim that, you know, come to our school, you're going to be an engineer or an economist or a doctor or a lawyer, and we'll lend you money because we're so confident in our own ability to increase your earnings that we're willing to lend you the money and therefore carry the risk. That also aligns the incentives properly because the school's at least from just like a financial perspective, they don't want to just dish out money that they don't expect to see. I anticipate that some vocations are going to lose out on this because it's going to be much more obvious that there's like a misalignment uh, in terms of whether or not it is worth it to like, you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on something that is potentially a dead end. Uh, So to me, that that would be like a more rational way to structure uh, the system. Trace, do you, uh, what do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I'm all in favor of that. I would have okay. no problem with that. And Pete, what would be your objection to what I just described? I do think that might be a, a more uh, rational system, but I, I do kind of bristle at the idea of education as being a primarily uh, as being primarily being an investment. Um, I think it has value in and of itself, and I think that should be recognized. I, I don't like the idea of education just being something that you could do to make more money. In a nutshell, right? And I mean. Ostensibly, that's what there's. There's a whole suite of public schools, is what I'm saying, that covers people through most of their lives. Uh, we're only talking about college education and beyond. I also bristle at the idea of education being purely for income down the line. However, when we're talking about payment, when we're talking about funds, when we're talking about someone getting someone else to spend money on you, I think that's the point where finances really do become relevant. Where it does become relevant, if you're saying I want to get this for free, then the question does have to become, well, what are the rest of us getting out of that? 
what good will you do for the rest of us with this? And for all its flaws, money does serve as a, what I heard once described uh, rather poetically as a neutral indicator of value provided to others. That it's impossible to say, you know, are you doing good things, are you doing bad things, whatever. If you're making money, it's because someone felt like you were useful enough to give you that money in some abstract way, whatever. So when you're boiling it down to a financial sense, the reason it makes sense for me to look at it financially like that is simply that, that you are asking for money from others. Therefore, you need to be able to demonstrate that you are providing value to others for it to be worth doing that. Pete, any response? Yeah, I mean, uh, also the the money as a neutral uh, indicator of value is kind of, uh, I, I bristle at that as well, because it implies that uh, uh, some ambulance chaser is more useful to society than, you know, a child care worker or a nurse or someone like that, which, you know, I don't think is the case. Um, well, I, I don't think it's an assessment of what society thinks. It's just, it's an assessment of what one person, at least, thinks. Right. That's to say, uh, if if someone with an education makes more money over the course of their career, that means they produce more value. And if they produce more value, then in aggregate, that means college-educated people make for a more prosperous society. And if society as a whole is benefiting, then it makes sense to me that society as a whole should contribute to that to that prosperity. There's a, a sort of laser focus on the individual that is worthwhile in a discussion that needs to happen, but I do think we need to zoom out a little bit and look at these things in aggregate. I, I guess we'll like revisit it as well, but it does strike me as a sort of double benefit. And looking at my own situation, I'm an attorney. I, I make a, you know, a pretty good uh, income. So I'm benefiting in a way, like in addition to the extra income that I get, I'm also getting this boon on top of it. So a question I have related to that and uh, you seen almost touched on this earlier, and I'd like to swing back to it. Blanket student loan forgiveness strikes me as very, very similar to another policy from the different side of the political aisle, which is blanket tax cuts. And I think the same rationale could be applied. The idea that, uh, yes, if you give a tax cut to everyone, the rich will benefit uh, more in strict number terms, but the poorer people who really need the money, they'll really feel value of that extra money. They'll really notice that more. And that by having more money in their pockets, everyone can then go out and provide more value to society. This is the argument that I hear made from people in favor of blanket tax cuts, that rich people will be able to do more useful things with that money than the government will, and they'll be able to provide more value to society with it. And that poorer people who really need that money in their pockets won't be giving it away and will be able to do what they can with it. What argument applies in favor of blanket student loan forgiveness that cannot then be turned in favor of blanket tax cut reduction? Or would you support blanket tax cut? Well, I think the argument is flawed in that demonstrably when you cut rich people's taxes, they generally don't do more productive things with it. They generally either keep it or turn it into things like stock buybacks. And so, so, wait, would they do different things with student loan forgiveness? Would they do more productive things with student loan forgiveness than with tax cuts? Those rich people that you're also forgiving their loans of. The, the people who have student loan debt, even the higher income quintile of them, are not the people who are going to do stock buybacks with blanket tax cuts. I mean, it's just not... The truly wealthy 
the 1% don't have student loans. Like, that's just a non sequitur. No, it's not. A lot of them do. A lot of the 1%. I don't know how many, but I'm confident that there are a number of the 1% who do have student loans. A number of doctors who are making more than $400,000 a year who had hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans that they were taking on to get that. Like, that's a fairly standard case. So I guess then the response would be the blanket tax cuts across the board would benefit overwhelmingly the, the truly, truly wealthy. And the benefit would be much less for the poor people. The truly, truly wealthy are much less likely to have student loans, even if they do own more of the student loans the, the pot, the total pot of student loans owed, the number of those people is fewer than poor people, which is not true of tax cuts, I think. But, but, and, and, and also tax cuts reduce the ability of, of the government to do other, to provide other services for people. Um, and wait, does student loan payment not reduce the government's ability to provide other services for other people? Is, is that like a, a, a vital source of income for the federal government, people's student loan payments when so many of them are in forbearance or like on paltry income-based? It's all trade-offs. It's all income. It, $1 trillion of tax cuts or $1 trillion of student loan payments, assume the number is exactly the same. Assume we're saying this number of tax cuts, exactly equivalent number of student loan payments. Then, I mean, yeah, I think they hinder the government's ability in exactly the same way. And, and to ground it in the actual figures where the federal government is getting $85 billion in student loan payments. So how is that different to echo Trace's question, how is like forgiving, let's say there is a, a jubilee, the government loses on $85 billion a year. How is that materially different from having a tax cut where the government loses $85 billion a year? Well, in one way, student loan interest is tax deductible. So people who are making more money would no longer be able to claim that tax deduction so that it, in effect, start paying more taxes. There'd be an increasing consumption which would um, add more money to state income tax or um, sales tax numbers. So those kinds of trade-offs. So factoring all that in, you mean? Well, it's the same argument given for, for tax cuts is that there's a stimulative effect. We cut taxes, that means people are going to spend. We forgive loans, that means people are going to spend. That seems to be the same, the same argument. But I, I, don't, I, I am having trouble like, understanding the material distinction between the two. In terms of, they sound very similar to me. In terms of impact, that's a pretty good point. But I think, I think with student loan debt versus tax cuts, um, it's true that a very small number of people would benefit in an outsized way. I think that the greater number of people would benefit more so versus what they would get from a tax cut. I have to push back on that also. In that, if you look at who has college degrees, uh, the bottom socioeconomic quartile. 15% have earned a bachelor's degree within eight years of their high school graduation, 22% in the second quartile, 37% in the third quartile, 60% in the top quartile. The people who are going to college and getting these educations, the people who are taking on this student loan debt, you're already knocking out a lot of the really poor by looking at that specific category. So if you're looking at uh, tax forgiveness compared to that, then that scoops up a lot of those non-college-educated people, those people who, are, who don't have that particular advantage, who are missed by the uh, college jubilee. So say, let's not say blanket tax cuts, let's say tax cuts on everyone making under $1 million a year, which cuts out the ultra-rich for a more even comparison. I don't think it's true that that would 
have less of a stimulative effect towards the very poor than blanket student loan forgiveness. I don't think that is the case. So what I would say to that is that you're sort of assuming that everybody with student loan debt is gainfully employed with uh, a college degree. No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm just assuming. No, I'm assuming there's a higher proportion of sure. people in this degree. And I think that's supported by the data. I think we're, we have to look at proportions on a society-wide scale. And I think the data indicates that fairly strongly. What you've kind of uh, brought up implicitly is um, means testing, I guess. Yes. Why not means test? Why not say we're not forgiving the very rich's student loans? We're not forgiving the student loans of people who we can really, really expect to pay it back. Why not means test? To that, I would say, I mean, if you want to pitch as a compromise. No, I'm not saying as a compromise. I'm not saying as a compromise. I'm saying why not seek as your ideal a means tested form? Why not say, our goal is to help the poor, therefore we do not want to help the rich with this. We are not going to push for something universal because we don't want to give a handout to the very wealthy. Why is that not an ideal? I'm not saying why is it not a compromise. So what I would say to that is, if, if you wanted to pitch as a compromise, you know, let's forgive $50,000 of debt like you know, Elizabeth Warren has pitched. Uh, you know, take the first $50,000 off your debt. If you owe less than that, it's gone completely. If you owe more than that, then take the difference, um, that's on you. I would probably be okay with that. Um, and that would be sort of a means testing implicitly. But um, That's not means testing, no. It wouldn't be means testing um, in the same way that you means test you know, Medicaid or food stamps or something like that. But it would be means testing in the sense that the people with very, very high student loan debt tend to be those higher earners. Pete, uh, let's try ranking like different schemes, uh, student loan jubilee schemes. There's the blanket forgiveness, doesn't matter how much you have, doesn't matter who you are, you don't have to pay anything. Mm -hmm. A downgrade from that would be, doesn't matter how much you earn, we'll just forgive the first 50000 And then another, an alternative scheme is, depending on how much you make, we will forgive a certain portion of it. Uh, those latter two, you could say they're sort of means tested, but they, the metrics for how they disaggregate people is very different. Because you can have like a, you know, someone like me, a high earner, uh, who also has like a high debt, that 50,000 doesn't take into account how much income I make. It just says, well, you have this much, we'll just forgive this, this tiny slice. Means tested, I think would be more accurately uh, relegated to tell us how much money, how much income you make. And then accordingly, we'll forgive some of it, depending on how much your income is. Right. So I'm not comfortable with calling it, uh, forgiving 50000 for everyone means testing because that's still a universal program and it still doesn't look at, say, someone who, like a friend of mine who has hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt and he's horribly irresponsible, but he also is a low-wage earner and is not by any means well-off and he would be one of the ones you would specifically want to target with this universal forgiveness that means testing, quote-unquote, would hurt him where it wouldn't hurt say, someone who was very, very wealthy and just didn't have, had happened to have $50,000 of debt, that person gets $50,000. That's why I don't really like calling that means testing, because it's not. It's a universal program that just gives a different universal benefit to everyone. And the goal of means testing, of seeing, we don't want to give money to people who really, really don't need the money. Specifically, we don't want to take money from people who do need it and give it to people who don't need it. That's the goal of something like that. 
And that blanket $50,000 doesn't really do anything about that. So, so Pete, if you were to rank the different schemes that I just described, the three different ones, how would you rank them in terms of what you would prefer? I guess one, I haven't really thought about number three. Okay, but between one, let's say how about between one and three, what do you see as the benefits of one over the other? I think the main one is just like, I guess, simplicity and political will, but ignoring those what in terms of policy? What's the how? Why would you prefer one over the other? It's like you said, simplicity, political will. Uh, I think those are you know worth considering, and just the avoiding sort of benefits cliffs that you see a lot of times. So where do you draw that line, and who's just barely over the other side of it? Okay, who gets left out? Um, and I, I'm really, I'm less concerned with who gets money that they maybe don't deserve than who doesn't get something that they really need. So I want to I want to again like revisit the initial question. What if I come to you with a tax cut plan where that results in exactly the same figures? One is, you know, a tax cut that is means tested, which is primarily targeted towards low earners. And the other is just a blanket tax cut with most of the benefit going to higher earners, but still like the lower earners still significantly benefit. Why, why would you object to, to that? And let's just assume that, you know, the finances of it are exactly the same between the tax cut plan and the student loan plan? I guess on a, on a visceral level, I just don't feel, and I don't know anyone who feels the burden of, of income taxes like they do the burden of student loan debt. It's just... How many conservatives do you know? Fewer than I do other people, but uh, that's true. I'm, I'm in sort of a, a liberal bubble, and I'll you know concede that without any hesitation whatsoever. So I want to tell you a story of a neighbor of mine. Now, he's a neighbor I think is absolutely straight-up crazy. But uh, he exists. I have a neighbor who lived next to me my whole life. Growing up, I grew up with his kids. We moved into his neighborhood the same time as... I mean, when I was four years old, we moved into his neighborhoods. I, he had a four-year-old daughter. We were friends all the time growing up. We were a close, you know, as neighbors are. Not like bosom friends, but like we all knew each other. We were all friendly. I moved away from there and heard on the news... And you know when you're hearing about your neighbor on the news, something is unusual. <laughs> that he had his home seized by the IRS because of almost a million dollars in unpaid taxes. He ended up going back and having a standoff with the feds, squatting in his own home over these unpaid income taxes. Now, I think this man is insane, but he was standing on principle. I think it's an insane principle, but he absolutely, very much felt the burden of those taxes. And his life has been blown to pieces because of the burden of those taxes. That is the bubble that I am from. I can absolutely assure you that people in certain bubbles very, very, very strongly feel this tax burden. Well, so let's discuss what the costs of not having a Jubilee are, uh, because I'm skeptical of them. Uh, so we have, we have a, a schema that is income-based repayment, and that means that depending on how much income you make, you only have to pay a certain amount. So if you make no money, you pay nothing. As your income grows, your repayment obligation grows to compensate for that, up to 10% or 20%, depending on which program you have. What's the argument against against that scheme, Pete? So my argument against that as a forward-looking policy for you know how to reform student loan financing in the future is that if you're going to do that kind of income-based repayment scheme, then 
it's starting to sound a little bit like a tax. So why not just bundle that money into the existing tax code and then use the existing mechanism of public state colleges rather than like adding this extra layer of bureaucracy to, uh, to finance this income-based repayment scheme, which, by the way, usually, at least currently now, you've got these private companies that sort of administer these loans, even though they're owned by the government, which is sort of like this pointless middleman that sort of skims off the top at the expense of debtors and, by extension, you know, taxpayers. So that being said, I would like to kind of say that I think we're sort of conflating two discussions here about, one, whether whether to forgive student loans, you know, the argument for and against the debt jubilee, and then what's the best way to finance college moving forward as a society. And those are two different discussions. They're definitely, you know, joined to the hip, but they're not identical. So right. I would like to to just, you know, reemphasize that point. But I still don't understand what, I think that's a salience that I'm missing in these discussions because I have like a shit ton of debt, but it doesn't mean anything to me because of income-based repayment because I'm not delinquent on the payments. I'm in good standing. Even if it was sometimes zero in the past, there's just like no material effect on my debt on me right now. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me. It's almost like functionally invisible, non-existent. So what exactly is the, is the problem? So like I said at the top of the show, I, I graduated from my public four-year university with a BA and about $40,000 in debt. Are you, but are you on an uh, IDR? I was for maybe until about three years ago. I'm 33 years old. So I, I graduated school about 10 years ago. So until about three years ago, I was on income-based repayment. What changed? I got a better job. Right. But you're still on, you're still on an IDR. You just have to pay a higher portion. No, right? no, I, I, um, I no longer qualify for it. And, and my student loan debt is my, it's my highest single bill outside of housing. So what would happen if you didn't pay it? If I didn't pay it, I w- yeah. it would go into default and it would nuke my credit. I mean, if I lost my job or if I got a, a new lower paying job, then yeah, I could, I could t- call up the student loan company and say like, Hey, my circumstances changed. And I, you know, I would deal with it in a way that wouldn't destroy my debt, but I would stop paying into the principal. I wouldn't make any noticeable dent in that debt whatsoever. It would still be tethered to me. But even, even though you, uh, sorry, I'm just confused. You're on a, you have a job, but you're not, you don't qualify for an IDR. Does that mean that there's no cap to how much you pay uh, every month? I, I can pay as much as I want. I pay the minimum. Right, right. But is there, what are you obligated to pay? Is it tethered to your income? The amount that you have to pay. I don't think it is. I know last time I applied for income-based repayment, they said, sorry, you no longer qualify. Here's your minimum payment. It's about $500 a month. I think it's like 490 something. And I just rounded up to 500. And and before when I was, the last job I had, I was making about 40,000 or so. My, my income-based repayment was like 350 or something or like 327, I think it was a month. So it does track with your income, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, but I don't think if I made more money, I think the minimum payment would still be like 500. So, yeah. So what, that's what I'm having trouble with. What's wrong with that system? Right. Like, so you're comfortable at this point, right? Like you're, you have a decent income, you have a decent setup. Like, I guess I'm not seeing the issue there. Because uh, ostensibly if your income drops, then your IDR kicks in and that safeguards you from any ruinous uh, financial situation. Well, yeah, but with the, the income-based repayment doesn't affect, I mean, it, it, once I'm paying, it's just I'm shoveling money into nothing. I'm not paying off the debt. I'm just staving off a bruise on my credit or, or worse. Right. But if you're in a, if you find yourself in a precarious financial situation in the future, 
it's not because of your student loan payments because that is also going to be modified. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's that is fair. So that's what I'm trying to understand. What's wrong with that system? Because uh, I'll, I'll give you more time, but from from a progressive standpoint, it seems equitable because it says if you can pay, then pay, and that means the government gets money. And if you can't pay, then you don't have to pay, which is you know very very similar to a progressive tax structure. Yeah, I'm still comfortable, and I'm and the, the income based repayments is a way to cushion the very worst outcomes from the very most vulnerable people, but the, the, I still feel burned by these loans. I mean, I have a question. It's still a shitload. It's, it's a shitload of money. I mean, that's money I could be doing. I could, I could have gotten a better house. Right. But I mean, you can say the same. I'm still having trouble understanding the distinction. You, you can, if we were talking about taxes, it, it, it still seems like the same thing. You can say, well, I'm burdened by the taxes I have to pay. And I would say, yeah, but you also make a decent amount of income that you can afford it. And if your income drops, then your income uh, tax burden also drops. So to me, that seems to be like a, a fair system. And what I don't, what I'm having trouble understanding is why pursue a Jubilee instead of just what we have with income-based repayment, which means that the people that need the help get the help and the people that don't, don't need the help anyway. So, the, I mean, the, the distinction for me is that even, even though the income-based repayment, like I said, cushions the most vulnerable from the very worst outcomes, the debt still exists. It's still hanging over the individual in a concrete form, and it cannot be gotten rid of. It cannot be... So make it dischargeable through bankruptcy. Well, that would be regressive too. People who don't... People who have debt but no degree, or people who have degrees but make less money are much more likely to default. And if uh, they were eligible for bankruptcy, then they would be much more likely to go bankrupt due to student loan debt. And that would have, you know, a real toxic effect on their ability to get lines of credit moving forward, to rent apartments, to, you know, get gainful employment in a lot of places. So I think that would be just saying, oh, you can you can dispel student loan debt and bankruptcy is not the same as, uh, or I think that would be, in effect, fairly regressive. I have trouble with that in the sense of you were saying the trouble is they have this debt hanging over their head, but then you make it dischargeable in bankruptcy. Oh, the trouble is now... I feel like one of those has to give, sort of. Like, either it's an issue that they have it hanging over their heads and therefore making it dischargeable in bankruptcy would allow it not to hang over their heads if that's a concern, or they could just uh, wait and have income-based repayment and then when they make more money, pay it off, or it's uh, not an issue because, yeah, I guess I don't I don't get that. Well, because with income-based repayment, you're not paying it off very often. You're just... So what? skimming interest right. off the top. So, so if that's an issue like discharge and bankruptcy. Well, I don't, I don't I think the the discussion about bankruptcy is is may, perhaps like premature because I still don't understand if you're if you're on an income-based repayment plan and you don't pay anything, you're still in good standing even though you contributed nothing. And you say that means that the debt is still hanging over their head, but what does that mean? They don't have to pay anything. Their credit is not impacted. It's just this fictional number that I don't see the impact of this fictional number on their lives. Just speaking from experience and from the experience of people I know, even when I was on income-based repayment, that number was, that that payment every month was a burden, even though it was tethered to my income and would go up and down accordingly. Okay, so what's, why don't I just adjust the, the calculation, maybe have like a higher deduction in terms of when it would actually start. Like, you know, if you make zero to $30,000 a year or whatever, you pay nothing. But then as soon as you... You know, I'm, I'm basically, I'm describing a progressive tax tax uh, scheme again. 
and I'm, I still don't understand. It's almost like a metaphysical question. Like what, if, if a debt has no effect on you, does it even exist? But it does have an effect. So if you, you keep, what is the effect? So what, what I'm, what I'm hearing, I mean, like I said, I mean, there were times when my, my student loan payment was keeping me from being able to get car repairs done, things like that, keeping me from being able to. No, but you're talking about the student loan payment, which is different from the student loan debt. The payment is an effect of the debt. That's inherent. Yeah. And I mean, if so, you, it, what I'm kind of hearing is the, the debt is a problem. And you, and what I'm saying is the payments are a necessary consequence of the debt. And what I'm kind of getting in response is, well, but what if we made the, the payments not a problem? Then the debt wouldn't be a problem. But the payments are a problem. Okay, but that, that's a separate discussion. Yeah, but if we can contrive, yes, if we can contrive some way that the debt payments had no material impact on your life, then it wouldn't be a big deal. But that's just not the so case. So what, what? I feel like that's income based repayment. Yeah, that, how would you, if you don't think that the current scheme of income based repayment is that, then what would you change about it? So if, you know, I don't know the exact calculations. I, I just, it's complicated as fuck. But when, if you have like a, a scheme that where you earn nothing, you pay nothing, and then progressively you start paying a higher share of your income as your income rises, what is the problem with that scheme for addressing student loans? So I'll repeat what I said before about, so in response to saying, well, why don't we just adjust income-based repayment so that it's less burdensome on people? I mean, that's still this added layer of bureaucracy. And if we're going to do that, then why not just integrate those payments or what those payments would be into the existing tax code and then utilize the existing mechanism uh, and existing structure of the state? Right. But, but Pete, that's like, that's exactly the same argument that people have for uniform tax cuts. They'll, they'll say, well, it's too much bureaucracy to have something tailored. Let's just cut taxes across the board. With or without tax cuts, there's still a tax system there's still a federal tax code, there's still an IRS. By getting rid of income-based repayment and tethering it and kind of like tying the whole thing up to just a federal education system using those structures which currently exist, you're, you are eliminating a layer of bureaucracy in a way that tax cuts don't. Trace, you wanted to get something yeah. in? Yeah, uh, I had a couple of questions. So number one, would you be comfortable with a scheme that said you personally would pay extra in taxes an amount exactly equivalent to your student loans in exchange for your student loans being forgiven. So for any individual, their income tax payments would go up exactly in kind to... Their current student loan payments, yeah? Yes. Yep. But then the student debt just disappears. Yeah, no student debt, it's just all taxes. No, I wouldn't. Because then the, the people who'd be left out of that are the people who are wealthy enough not to have student loans. If you just picked up current student loan payments and dropped them into income tax, then that would still only encompass the people who currently have student loans. Whereas if you incorporated it into the tax code, it would be everybody, including the very wealthy. So we'll do that and then raise taxes on the very wealthy. But then the, those taxes on the very wealthy wouldn't offset the, the, the burden on, on everyone else, which is... Okay, we'll raise taxes more on the taxation. very wealthy. But the point of raising taxes on the very wealthy is to reduce the burden on everyone else. Just raising those taxes on the very wealthy without reducing the payments from everybody else it defeats the purpose. Okay, that's clarifying. Thank you. So, as someone who has sunk a huge amount of time cost without debt, what do I get from the student debt jubilee? Why should I be in favor of a student debt jubilee that benefits 
people who made the opposite decision to me at the expense of me? Um, I guess you don't have to support it. <laughs> that, doesn't a, that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Right, right. But so basically, like, that's the position, though, is that it is something that materially I should not support. Like, whether I could end up supporting it for other people's interest is an open question, but materially, it's against my own interests. Yeah, but I, I mean, I want to go back, I guess, uh, in response to that. You sort of brought up the, the parable of the, uh, the ant and the grasshopper. Yes. I think that's an overly simplistic view of the situation. To kind of go a little more into my own background, I went to, you know, I came out of public schools. I did, after high school, I did two semesters at community college, uh, cost-free, then transferred and did four years at a at Southern Connecticut State University, and left with a bachelor's degree and about forty grand in debt. You know, and th- and th- in that time, I worked part time. I had uh, a job in retail. I worked about twenty hours a week during the school year and full time during the summers and on breaks. I lived off campus in apartments. You know, shitty apartments with friends. I ate crappy food. The whole thing. You know, I I. Wasn't living my whole life in such a way as to avoid debt, but I really thought I was making smart decisions. I, I, I wasn't just living completely freely and blithely with no regard to cost. I was really trying to be prudent. What kind of balancing my desire to, you know, get an education and have time to study and have time to, you know, hang out with my friends and enjoy college and things like that. And I think that's normal. I don't think that that's, you know, a mark against my character. I know lots of people who did the same thing. Maybe they worked a little more. Maybe they lived with their parents whatever, but they made prudent decisions and went to school and still came out with just a ton of debt. And I think that kind of contradicts the, the ant-grasshopper dichotomy. Well, I don't know. It's, it's, because it's, I would it's say... Because well, when you say like the ant and the grasshopper, kind of what comes into my head is like, there's you who's the sober, industrious person who's... Sorry, and just to say, like, I, I really admire your position and I admire how much work and and planning you've put into how you've chosen to pursue your education and and avoid debt. Like, that's really admirable to me. But everybody who didn't do what you did isn't some, you know, blue-haired Oberlin undergrad studying basket weaving for $80,000 a semester. Like, that's just not the reality of it. There's a lot of people stuck in the middle. I would say the only point at which I would say someone becomes a grasshopper in that scenario is when they're saying... And now that I've gotten this benefit, I would like other people to pay the cost of it for me. Like, in your position, I feel like you're in a really good position, frankly. I think you're in a position that I envy. You're a few years further down the line from me. You have what sounds like a stable, comfortable, good job. You're on track to a comfortable, middle-class life. Like, the system worked for you, it sounds like. Is That's honestly what I'm hearing from you, is that you took on some student loan debt, you were frugal, you were careful... It hung over your head for a while. It's still going to hang over your head for some time, but you have a good job. You can pay it off. You can go on into the future, and you can live a comfortable, happy life. The end. Like, that seems reasonable to me. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable price to pay for that benefit that you receive. Yeah, I don't think that grasshopper dynamic inherently comes into play when you're just going through and saying, you know, I took on this debt. I willingly took it on, knowing that I'd get this benefit, I got this benefit, I'm keeping this benefit, and I'm paying off this debt, and having paid it off, I'll go and be a productive member of society, and be happy, and be whatever. Like, you know, that sounds cool. It starts feeling grasshoppery to me when someone says, I got all this, I got this benefit, I got this 
very good thing through college, and now that I have accrued this particular benefit, I want someone else to pay the cost for me. In direct response to your very last point, you know, I also pay taxes, so it wouldn't just be other people paying this back. It would be, you know, myself, everyone else who, who right. would so, have their tip. Okay, so, this goes back to my question. Would you personally, setting aside a societal thing, would you personally be comfortable paying an exactly equivalent amount of taxes to your student loan debt if it meant your student loan debt got forgiven? I think psychologically, probably more so, but... Would that, would that be an improvement on your situation right now? No, not materially. Okay. So then the only material reason for you to push for it would be, like you're saying it's in your best interest to have it forgiven, that it only remains true if you assume that you will pay less for it than you otherwise would. That's, that's where I'll pay taxes doesn't sound completely accurate to me, in that you're saying, I want this benefit from it. And sure, I'll pay some of it in taxes, but, but the goal is to pay less. I think it might be more helpful to switch to uh, an, another topic, which is talking about the iterative game that happens with, with this scheme. This kind of gets into it when you're talking about the ant and the grasshopper situation. Right now, I don't pay like a significant amount of student loan payments, and I have no plans whatsoever because I would just feel like a complete fucking moron if I worked extra hard or worked extra hours uh, at my current job just so I can give it to the government when there is a plausible and realistic chance that a significant portion of it is going to be forgiven. I'm in a good situation because I got a tremendous benefit and then I'm supposedly not likely to carry any of the burden. So for me, the student loan, the outstanding student loans that I have are fictional. The only thing that matters is the amount that I have to pay every month. And that is like more than manageable. And so it doesn't, it doesn't impact me right now. But if I had to go, if I was to like go back in time, I would have just taken out way more in student loans. That would be the rational thing to do. Uh, because if, I, if it's not going to matter to me afterwards, then why not just kind of like go on a splurge? And I sort of did when I went to law school but not to the fullest extent that I, that I could have. And I mean, one of the concerns here is there was this, uh, there was a Atlantic article that you posted Pete called why is college in America so expensive? And I personally found it an extremely frustrating thing to read. Uh, it's by Amanda Ripley. I mean, the basic argument is that there's no regulations to keep prices down and it's a, it's a service, not a product. So it's just natural for college to go up in price or in cost. Uh, just like how it's natural to, for healthcare to go up in cost in the United States. I was confused or at least suspicious of that argument because college, both college and healthcare are the prime examples of markets where the person receiving the benefit is not the person paying for the benefit. So with healthcare, you have insurance companies giving the benefit to the provider and the patient is receiving the, the benefit of treatment, uh, not necessarily burdening the entire cost of the transaction. The same thing happens in college where the person receiving the benefit, the student, is not shouldering the cost of the benefit. That's shouldered by a third party, the government in this case. So in both those industries, you have this mismatch, uh, a moral hazard problem where the person paying for it is not the same person receiving the benefit. So there's this gap between how how much scrutiny you you give to whether or not it's a sound decision. The rational decision in, in either instance is to just go 
to go ham. Just get as many benefits as you can because you're not paying for it. And to me, that seems the obvious explanation for why college uh, has gone up dramatically in price. Universities are saying, hey, come be a student here. We have like, you know, a lazy river, a great gym. We have all these, we have like a fun experience for four years and you get to make more money in the end and you don't have to pay for any of it. And so students are like, fuck yeah, that sounds like a great deal. I'm totally doing this. And then that's how you end up with like skyrocketing college uh, prices and, you know, $1.6 trillion in outstanding debt. But the current scheme seems to be obvious to me that it's driving uh, costs to go up. And adding a Jubilee is only going to make that like spiral upward even further. Because not only do other, uh, does a third party pay for your benefit, but that third party periodically might even like forgive the potential and hypothetical costs that you would have to pay back. Pete? I, I agree broadly with your characterization of why college has gotten so expensive in the United States. I will say that the article also points out uh, multiple times that the United States is pretty unique in the situation. College just doesn't cost as much money in other places where it's publicly financed. Um, and the United States is also pretty unique in the extent to which it just depends on individuals to finance their education with loans, or at least to the extent that it does. Functionally, the system that we have looks like just kind of like an elaborately dressed up publicly funded education system because it's still the government that is holding like the vast majority of loans, which is what, like 96% of all outstanding debt is held by the government. So the government is like coming in and fronting you the money and there's no credit check. There's no limit to how much you can, uh, you can get, but you're getting kind of like the worst of both worlds, at least from a policy perspective, because you're not really getting any realistic control on the cost because what, there's no benefit. There's no incentive whatsoever for schools to lower their cost because there's no limit to how much money you can take out. So they can just like raise tuition as much as they want. And that's been like, that's what's been happening. There's no reason for them to pair it back because, well, why do you care? You're not paying for it. It's the government and the government doesn't seem to care. It's just shoveling money out the door with no tethering to any sort of like restriction. You can get as much money as you want uh, taken out in loans, there's no credit check whatsoever. And there's some kind of like outstanding examples. I think there was like an orthodontist that had like, I don't know, $1.6 million or something ridiculous in student loan debts. Because why not? Like the what's going to happen to you? Uh, especially with kind of like the, the scheme that we have. Uh, I'll give you a, a chance to respond, Pete, but uh, Trace, is that kind of like an accurate representation of your position yes. as well? Yes, absolutely. I co-sign. Do you want to add anything to it? Because this gets into kind of like the game theory aspect. Right. No, I think that game theory aspect is really important. And I completely agree. Like, I really worry that colleges right now are just spiraling in uh, really weird ways because the true cost of it is masked. Um, And I would really, really like the true cost of the whole thing not to be masked, to be in such a way that... Things like the current school I'm at, which I really admire, for its system, Western Governors University, come into possession, where they say, look, in the, in the case of this school, they're like, look, you can take classes as quickly as you can learn the material, you pay a flat rate per semester, go ahead and do as quickly as you want, as much as you want, work hard, it's an online school, and 
uh, you can get through it cheap. You get these alternatives that arise that are cost-sensitive, and I think a lot of things like that should pop up. I think things like that should be happening. The government, uh, when you mask the cost, you lose opportunities like that, as things are like, oh, well, yeah, if the, cost is, if the true cost is masked, we don't need to innovate like that. We can just let things keep spiraling in vague darkness and see what happens. Pete? I'll, I'll repeat a point that I believe I made uh, sort of in the beginning, which is that I don't think that a student loan jubilee is a standalone solution to the problems in higher education. It's, it's not. If you just canceled all the debt and then kept everything going as it currently is, that would be fucking stupid. I, I will not disagree with that whatsoever. How would you curtail the rise in expenses that would likely happen with a jubilee? I, I don't see, like, how would prices go up? Uh, in that when people see, oh, so all this spiraling things uh, gets forgiven anyway, so there's no danger whatsoever to taking on as much cost as however much cost is needed because the government will pay for it and then we'll figure out some way to make sure it gets forgiven. At no point will the true bill come due, so it's rational both for colleges and for individuals to just go hard and take on as much cost as uh, they can. So, I mean, that's, that. yes, if if there was a debt jubilee with no further, you know, reforms whatsoever, that might be rational uh, for them to say. But, I mean, the last, the last time there was anything like a debt jubilee in the United States was 1841, somewhere around there. So, I mean, I don't think that doing it once would necessarily be a guarantee that there's going to be one every generation or so. There was, uh, it wasn't exactly a debt jubilee like we're talking about now, but it was a, um, a bankruptcy bill that basically functioned as one for a lot of people. A lot of people were able to just discharge their debt, their own debt, sort of unilaterally. What you guys are saying is that if there's a debt jubilee, then it will be rational for people to assume that there will be regular debt jubilees moving forward yeah. for the foreseeable future, um, at least within our own lifetimes. Either that or... It will be rational for people to assume that there can be no cost to taking on enormous amounts of debt. That is enough to worry ab about taking on enormous amounts of debt or continuing to jack prices up. Because if things get desperate, someone else will foot the bill for this. And, and, and sort of my response to, I mean, my response to that would be is that my, my fundamental position at the end of the day is that education shouldn't be paid for with personal debt. I don't think that's a, a good way to do it. I mean, and kind of going off what uh, Yassine was saying, the way it works now is people go through, you know, primary and secondary school, and it is drilled into your head, at least, you know, for middle class people and, and you know, upper middle class, upper people. It is drilled into your head the whole time you're growing up that you must go to college, you must go to college. It's just assumed that you're going to college. And then for a lot of people, if not most people, that means taking on student loan debt. And there's really no way when you're that age to understand or conceive of what it is to have debt. It's just impossible. It's like you could have a financial education class in high school or whatever, but it's, you know, it would be like trying to teach someone what it's like to be in a relationship or to have sex with sex ed. It's just, you can kind of go through the numbers and, and the hard facts, but you really can't replicate the experience of being indebted. I feel like I had a pretty solid grasp on it at that age. Like, I was really, really anti-debt really early on. I think you're kind of an outlier in that sense. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, but, that's that's not unfair, but... but I mean, I was, was anti-debt, so, too. So, 
but just with that understanding that people are told in no uncertain terms that college is something you must do or college is something you really should do. I was having a conversation with my friend yesterday. I didn't even tell him I was doing this podcast and student loan debt just came up as a topic of conversation. And he said, you know, I didn't really want to go to college, but my parents really pressured me into it. And I kind of wish I had pushed back on them more. And now he's got no no degree and uh, I think like $10,000 in student loan debt that he's been unable to chip away at very substantially. I think if you want to claim that too many people go to college, you, you'll you'll have a favorable audience. <laughs> we'll both be. Yes, yes, yes yeah. on that. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that should not be the default the way it is. It should, and that's that's kind of, and it, it's predatory. It's it's fucking predatory. Is my my it point is. is that it's, oh. it's 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 predatory, and so we agree that it's it's absolutely predatory. And so I think there needs to be a wholesale reform of how college is financed, at least at the individual level. And maybe a good way to end end all this is for Pete. You you mentioned that there's you know it shouldn't just be debt jubilee on its own. There should be some other reforms that that tag along with it. What would be examples of that? Well, let's uh, let's talk about like ways to address the cost. So you have spy skyrocketing college costs, and I think they're primarily driven by this third party payment uh, scheme that we have. And I think uh, that Jubilee would would spiral that even further. You disagree, but what? But you did say that you'd have like some sort of that there should be some sort of constraints on it. What, what would be examples of constraints that would try to limit the cost? Probably look at what other countries do. The Atlantic article, like I said, goes, uh, or it mentions several times that the United States pays more than any other developed country for like on a per student basis for higher education. So a lot of them have different structured systems. They have regulations in place to keep costs from rising too much. So kind of adopting from some of what those other countries do, maybe the UK, Germany, Australia, things of that nature. I think probably sports, getting rid of <laughs> sports is probably a good spot. Or not getting rid of sports, but not subsidizing college sports so much would probably be a good place to start. I think that, that you know, four-year college, I think it should be publicly funded. I think it should be uh, like any other public school. I mean, that does seem to be a way a way to tamper down on the on the cost because... Right now, you have like this weird chimera of a system where the government does publicly fund education, but it does it in this very roundabout way. That's confusing. Yeah, I think just just doing it more directly would give, one, give the government more leverage to, well, not that it needs the leverage, but it would give it more incentive to regulate cost directly. And just kind of like shoveling everything into this like hybrid financialized system is, it's just not working. And it's placing the burden on individuals with, with debt. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. I think it's a stupid fucking system. I, I don't think anyone would say, you know, why don't we uh, why don't we get rid of public schools and or we public schools now instead of being funded by the taxpayer directly, parents can take out <laughs> loans and you know <laughs> that would be fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and people would be like, no, go to hell. But suddenly, if I say, hey, let's stop doing that. And just let the government pay for people to go to college. It's you know well, that, everyone loses think, their mind. Meme. No, no. Well, I think that's depends. like a, a much more rational and reasonable proposal compared to just like kind of jury rigging onto this like unwieldy system that we currently have. I'll give you kind of like closing thoughts, Trace, and then Pete, you'll have the final word. So I think sometimes in cases like this, when I'm pushing back against proposals from the left, there's this feeling that oh, um, you don't want 
similar end goals. And to push back a little on that, I'll point out that I would be pretty comfortable with uh, government-funded schools. I have considered, in fact, moving to countries that have government-funded schools, specifically because that reasoning makes sense to me. I would be comfortable with a number of proposals in that vein, um, assuming I could trust the people running it to run it responsibly and to run it carefully and to run it with awareness of the costs, the trade-offs, the difficulties. And where I so often come into conflict with the uh, far left and where I feel like I'm generally at loggerheads with them is feeling like there is not this appreciation for the trade-offs, the difficulties, the true costs of things, and there's uh, an immense degree of pushback against people pointing out those costs. And I really, really appreciate you coming on and hashing the issues out and facing down directly some of what I think are the real serious costs and the real serious trade-offs and the things that need to be answered with policies like this. Because ultimately, I do think the U.S. college system is broken. I think that the payment setup we have for it is absurd, it's irresponsible, it's a horrible chimera of competing priorities and structure that no one would sit down and design if they were designing from the ground up. It's just poorly done right now, and I've felt the costs of that uh, poor structure, and I want change. I want something better, but I want to be sure that what is being put in place as something better is not just bandage that lets this same horrifying monstrosity get worse and worse and worse and more and more lumbering and clunky and nasty in all of our lives. And so I push back really, really hard against things that seem like they might make the lumbering monstrosity worse. And I think the student debt jubilee is a really big one of that. But I am fully on board with finding ways to create something better from it all. Just one last anecdote about the ways this impacts things, the ways this student debt jubilee concept impacts things, is that a real dilemma that I am facing right now is the question of, should I take out student loans I don't need on the off chance that they get repaid and I get free money from it? I won't do that because I have a moral objection to it. In fact, that moral objection was the first thing my conservative father raised when I uh, brought the dilemma to him. He was like, uh, no, that's immoral to take, back, to take out money that you don't intend to pay back. And I was like, well, yeah, okay. So, so I won't do that, but I could. And that's the sort of question I start tossing about when I hear that this sort of forgiveness is on the table. And that's one reason it's such a toxic idea for me. You have that times 10 million with 10 million different people looking at 10 million different things of here's how I personally can benefit from this in a way that uh, hurts a diffuse amount of people in a difficult to track sort of way and screws up the incentives for everyone down the line. So what I'd really like to see is moving forward towards a future where we can properly have education in the role it should have of ideally being as accessible as possible to as many people who could really benefit from it as possible without introducing all sorts of nasty snarls and things that look good on the surface and start making things really messy and really ugly as soon as you dig deep. All right, Pete, you get parting shot. Well, I think we actually agree on more than it may have seemed like uh, over the course of the, the episode. I think like we, like we said before, the current system is just utterly broken, predatory in nature. Um, and we agree on the fact that the, the system is so broken and 
it's predatory nature. And that means people have been taken advantage of in a way that's just not fair. And I think my core reason for supporting the debt jubilee is that when people are taken advantage of, when they've been at the receiving end of a predatory system, they deserve to have that made right. If we agree that the system is broken and that it needs to be fixed, fixing it for people in the future doesn't do anything for the people who have already been adversely affected by an unfair, broken system. And that's the purpose of the Jubilee. It's to make amends for the people who have been disadvantaged. And yes, maybe some people who don't need it would get the help, but I'd sooner that happen than any anybody who does need the help doesn't get it. And that's that's a matter of judgment that we might disagree on, but that's my position on why I would prefer something universal versus something kind of rigged in this sort of Rube Goldberg machine so that nobody gets something they, they maybe don't deserve. That's just, I think that we have the capability as a society to do a one-time mulligan and kind of look to the future uh, and build something better. And that's what we ought to do. Okay, cool. Thank you everyone for solving the student loan problem. <laughs> yeah, anytime. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. <laughs>